Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now on Fast, inflation still running red hot, highest in over 40 years. And one influential Fed president saying today, everything is in play. So how do you trade this rising great environment? Plus, the chairwoman's in the money call, on the money call, I should say. Twitter soaring since officially suing Elon Musk to complete his $44 billion buyout. What's she doing next? And where does this soap opera go from here? And later, a buzzkill from an industrial supply company. A look ahead to bank earnings and the rent's too damn high. Now that's a tease. <laughs> I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site. On the desk tonight, Bono and Ison, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. We start off with the inflation print 41 years in the making. Consumer prices rising more than 9% in June, the fastest pace since 1980. The stock market's end of the day down a bit after the report, but the move in yields was a much more pronounced one. The spread, the twos tens, hitting its lowest level since 2000. So does all this open the door for an even more aggressive Fed? And what will the market reaction be? Because the market reaction today was practically nothing, Dan. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, there was a lot of volatility under the hood. I think the initial reaction was for the stock market, like straight down. And if you looked at what was going on in yields, you know, prior to the print, we had um, the 10-year at 2.93. It shot up immediately to 303. And then everything kind of moderated. And at some point in the morning, you're like, okay, everything's okay. We saw some green on the major indices, that sort of thing. I mean, I think that Earnings are really going to become the story here, and we just heard them talking about in the OT. What are corporations going to have to say about how this inflation is impacting them? We know that the five-year um, break-evens on inflation are coming down pretty hard, right? So maybe this is just a moment in time. A lot of people explain this away as backward-looking data here, but it certainly is impacting households. And let's see during earnings season if it's impacting corporate spending, because that combination, and then when you think about how much further in a this. How much longer does it take for these rate hikes to kind of work their way into the economy? So if the Fed chair Bostic, or, or not chair, but if she's saying that everything's on the table, all of a sudden you have to start pricing in a recession, in my opinion, at some point this year, which for the stock market does mean lower prices because we still haven't had an adjustment to earnings expectations for this year, still expected to be up high single digits year over year. Yeah. Guy, what's your take on the market action? Well, it's a bond market volatility, which we've talked about literally for months. And now everybody seems to be jumping on that bandwagon. I heard it a few different times today. I mean, Dan said 303. I think 10-year actually got up to 307, closed on the lows at 2.9%. I mean, you're talking about a 17 basis point intraday move and something that should not move like that in a month. And I think that's somewhat remarkable. And I think 10-year yields will continue to go down somewhat counterintuitively because of the reasons Dan just said. Things are slowing down. Yields going lower in this environment is not a bullish signal. And I think that two years is going to stay stubbornly high. So I even was shocked at 9.1%. I didn't see a nine handle. That was not on my bingo card. But what's even more shocking is the people that still somehow have this belief that these, uh, I won't say geniuses, but I just did, at the Federal Reserve can somehow navigate their way through this. The bottom line is there's no shot of that happening. And is there some thinking in the markets um, that, that maybe, maybe we've come in enough to reflect 
this all since we haven't gone down. I mean, the knee-jerk reaction should be, I mean, Dan said go down, but stay down over the course of the day if the belief really is um, that there is a recession in the making and that we're seeing it in the bond market, Karen. So, I mean, it's tricky because on the one hand you have, okay, this is a really hot number. The Fed needs to do something. If the Fed's super aggressive, then we'll see a recession and then the Fed can back off. So and that's, that's good. I guess. Yeah. In the meantime, that's bad. I'm not really sure. I think that um, this idea of are we at peak inflation? Is this trailing number really somewhat off? I actually buy into that because I do believe we have seen commodities roll over, not all of them, but certainly some of them. We've seen housing prices come off. I think we'll continue to see some after effects of all of this excess inventory and things coming down. Gas prices have come down. So I do think we may have seen the top print. That doesn't get the Fed off the hook, because even though that print may come down, it's still an enormous print relative to where we were a year ago. So I think even if the Fed should be aggressive, and I don't think that we, I don't think they're done. I mean, I think if you're a consumer paying 470 at the pump versus $5, that's still very painful, <laughs> even though it's it's going in the right direction, Bonwin. Right direction, but it still you know it still speaks to demand destruction mm-hmm. and the the burden that it puts on a household. I mean, we've kind of all come together, and you've heard various people speaking about peak inflation for some time now. And and what jumps out to me is that, you know, before it was housing, then it was gasoline prices, and you're starting to see some of that stuff abate. And I think Karen makes a really really good point. We have seen that commodity complex come in, and you don't really expect to see that continue. But what about rent prices? What about housing? What about maybe it is gasoline prices? Maybe they make a pullback. What about ag prices and food prices? So, you know, what we're seeing is what we've seen is like spottiness. And now we're seeing consistent all boats rising. And I think that kind of speaks to stickiness. So I would expect the Fed to continue being aggressive. You know, I think some people are looking for them to be so aggressive that they're able to pivot. But I'm not necessarily sure I'd hang my hat on that just quite yet. I mean, rent is two fifths of core CPI. You sign a lease for at least a year, guy. And so things are coming down. You might not see it for for some time. So to that, to Bonowin's point, these things are sticky. Also, we heard from PepsiCo when it reported earlier this week, right? I mean, 12% increases in price on average across its portfolio without any dent in demand. That means people are paying for it. But at some point, Guy, you're not going to say no more Doritos. They're too expensive. Yeah, I said no more Doritos, uh, you know, 41 years ago when that peak inflation was, when I was 35 years old. My doctor told me I had to cut them out, but that's probably for another show. Listen, what it comes down to is this, Melms, all the things you just said, they don't go down in a straight line. They moderate clearly, uh, but they're not going to revert that quickly. I still, you know, I've said this, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but, you know, this Federal Reserve is probably three, three and a half years behind the curve on this one. And they're going to continue to have to be aggressive, regardless of whether or not commodities have come down. I agree, but not nearly enough. And by the way, you know, we're talking about crude oil quickly. I happen to think, you know, this might be the low in the short term for crude. You might see a counterintuitive bounce here in crude oil, you know, selling into the Saudi Arabia meeting, buying on the back of it. And, Jay, and Goldman Sachs, by the way, still thinks $140 is in the cards. I happen to agree with them. Yeah, I'll just say this. We haven't mentioned the U.S. dollar yet, and you see how that closed today, about 108 in the Dixie. We know 50% of that or so is the euro, and we know why the euro is so weak, so it just hit parity for the first time in you know 20 years or so. But when you think about U.S. multinationals, you just mentioned Pepsi. They sell an awful lot of goods outside the U.S., so they've had to kind of raise prices, right, to kind of absorb that strength in the dollar. But again, I just think that this is going to be something that we're going to hear a whole heck of a lot of over the next few weeks. We're not going to have companies that are 
able to raise prices the way in which Pepsi did. You know, it's really important to remember that these are kind of some of these lower end prices and they may work at this point of the cycle here. That's not going to work for some higher end um, products. And then, you know, again, listen, corporate earnings. What are the major impacts? We just heard about margins. We were talking about margins that were peak as we headed into this year. A lot of companies are still trading at multiples that are not reflective of the broad market. Microsoft, I think, is going to probably be the most important one next week, I think, on Thursday when they report. Here's a company that still trades 26 times, 24 times next year's sales. They've already worn on the dollar. Um, So I I just think there's a whole host of things. I think we're really early on this. Until we kind of see that we are in a recession, I think it's kind of shoot first ask questions later, one step forward, two steps back in the market. To me, though, it's interesting with this really hot number and with the Fed having almost by name called out the housing industry as something that they need to cool down, it was surprising that, you know, all the home builders were up, Pulte and uh, Toll, I think, so and Home Depot and Lowe's. So I don't know if, if people are just sort of looking past that. It's that would be that's sort of curious to me. What if rates stay low, um, then rates, then things are are more affordable. Right, but rates are going to be higher with this hot inflation number. Well, one would think, except that that's not what we've seen in the bond market. Right. I mean, well, I would say nearer the front of the bond market. More importantly, the all of the home builders were down. They gapped down to two and a half percent or something like that. Finished. But that doesn't feel like a fundamental move to me. When you see the sort of price action that we saw today, if algos are selling pre-opening, we know the liquidity and we right. know what the headlines right. were in this. That makes sense. OK. But the fact that they just bought them, you know, an hour into it. And then if you look at like Lennar, it flatlined from about 1030. You know what I mean? Like like that. That just seems like kind of unnatural buying. That's not fundamental buying. And that's why I just think this earnings season, when we actually hear the inability for these companies to articulate what their visibility is, given all of these headwinds, I think that's going to be the thing that maybe is the thing that breaks us out of this range, is at least what the S&P 500 is. We've been talking about these rallies off the lows that keep getting weaker and weaker. You know what I mean? Like they're not they just don't have a whole heck of a lot of oomph. I think we're really waiting for that fundamental news. Ken, is there a bullish case to be made for the housing industry, Bonwin, at this point, do you think? Uh, I think there's a case to be made that it still continues to be strong. And honestly, it's going to really come down to wages and the housing market. Until those two things break, and we've seen persistent strength in both of those, I don't see the Fed changing course at all. And, you know, I I hear Dan's point about some of the price action. What we have seen on these bounces is, is at least early on in the phase, rotation into the things that have most underperformed, and these stocks have gotten absolutely killed. So I'm not surprised to see people eh, pick and choose, particularly once you see such volatility in the rate market. I mean, those are correlated. So I can understand how you start to see people step in there. You know, I don't think it continues, but I do think that it's consistent with the type of trading and price action we've seen. Really quickly, I know I'm just... Lennar was up 28% off its recent lows just in the last month, okay? So it had a heck of a move, uh, you know what I mean? So you got your rotation. I mean, think about that. The S&P was just up at its highs about 9.5% off of the lows from last month. So these names that have gotten destroyed, they had massive sort of rallies here. So to me, I think that's really important to kind of factor into. Our next guest is delivering a grim picture of the inflation fallout. Jim Bianco runs Bianco Research. Jim, great to see you. Thanks for having me. So you think 100 basis points is in the cards for July. Um, what sort of environment are we are we entering um, in terms of the economy at this point with 100 basis points on the table? Yeah, and the market is pricing in about a 70 percent chance now that the Fed is going to go 100. That was like five before the number this morning. And it's pricing in another 75 on top of that 100 at the September meeting. So you're looking at a three and a half funds rate. 
by the middle of September. And the reason is the Federal Reserve, I think, has made it abundantly clear job one, job two, job three is going to be bring inflation down. If the economy slips into recession and the inverted yield curve might be slip, uh, signaling that, or if the stock market struggles, it slips in the recession and it struggles. They're going to focus on inflation. That's their job. And so right now, we're in a situation where good news is bad news. So when you get a strong payroll report, when you get any kind of strength in any of the numbers, that just opens the Fed up for more rate hikes. And that's why we've got 100 basis points. It wasn't just the CPI number that did it. It was also 373,000 jobs last Friday that opened the door for that. Jim, every once in a while, I mean, in the, in the old days, you see these emergency rate cuts in between meetings. I mean, it seems to me 9.1 handle is a bit of an emergency situation. Why would they wait? Why don't they just come out and do it? What's the point of waiting till the meeting? I think it's optics. I think it's optics that they don't want to look like they're panicking, although you could argue what is 100 well, hold basis on, no, hold points. Hold on one second. Hike. No, no, no. I got it. Let me push back on that. Let me push back on that a second. I hear you. They're long past optics. I mean, the days of them and optics are way gone. I mean, that, that ship has sailed. So if they're worried about optics, they're worried about the wrong things because they have zero credibility left. Sorry to interrupt you. No, you, you're, you're absolutely right. I was going to say, what's the difference between an intermediate move and a 100 basis point hike? It still kind of portrays the same thing. But you're right. They're so far behind the curve. Every rate hike campaign has always ended with a positive real yield. That means interest rates above the inflation rate. Now, inflation's not going to stay at 9%, but it's not going to 3 It might go to 5 It might go to 6 And every rate hike campaign will have to end with a positive real rate. They've got a long way to go. That's why I think that the 100 basis points is coming, and I think why the market has struggled. I'll give you a, a, one fun statistic. Only three up weeks in the last 13 in the S&P. Go back to 1928. That ties the record of futility for the least number of up weeks over any 13-week period. Jim, you say stagflation is a possibility. What do you think the odds of stagflation are today versus, say, the last Fed meeting? Oh, I think, you know, the odds of stagflation are probably 100% right now. 100%? You got 9%. Yeah, okay. Well, let's, let's define stagflation, right? High inflation, 9% inflation, low growth. The Atlanta Fed is telling us that we might see another negative number, another consecutive negative number. If it doesn't go negative, it's just going to be barely positive. That's your definition of stagflation. Now, the comforting news about stagflation is it's a situation that doesn't last long, maybe a quarter or two or several months, but it doesn't go on for years and years. But it's going to be a very challenging environment. And it's going to be challenging for the Fed because they're going to be pulled and pulled by two different things. They may raise rates 100 basis points on July 27th or maybe 75, I think 100. The next day is GDP, and it could very well be negative or under 1%. And, you know, guys ask me about a do- uh, optics. How about that? Raise rates 100 basis points, and 24 hours later, we get a negative GDP report. They are in a very difficult position, but I think when they look through it all, their focus is going to be on inflation, and that's going to spell trouble for markets because the Fed's not their friend. The Fed is their enemy right now until this inflation thing goes away. So stagflation lasts one or two quarters and is a short-lived um, situation, Jim. What's the other side of stagflation? Is it necessarily economic growth? It can be um, because what stagflation should do is it should break the back of inflation. 
and we should then start to see the economy. Look, I've argued we're in a post-pandemic economy. What that means is we got to stop thinking about 2019 returning. It's not. We have a different economy. Don't confuse that with dystopian. It's different. And once we start understanding that and restructure the economy for the new post-pandemic economy, we can get out of this. Unfortunately, we spend too much time fighting whether or not there actually is a post-pandemic economy. You know, a lot of the real estate guys in Manhattan are just saying, you wait, everybody's coming back to the office. No, they're not. And with, as soon as we figure out why they're not and we move forward with that, the sooner we will get to the post-pandemic economy and we can start seeing normality return to markets or at least what we think is normality. Last quick question. This is a one-word answer, I think, Jim. And I'm going to ask the traders this. What's better for the stock market, stagflation or recession? Probably recession. Yep. Jim, thank you. Jim thank Bianco, you. Bianco Research. Same question to you, Karen. Agree. Recession. Yeah. Bonoin? Same. Mm-hmm. Guy? Recession. Dan. I don't understand the question. I mean, like, like what I'm saying, <laughs> we're, we're going to have a recession and better. it's going to be stagflationary. I mean, like, that's the point. They're going to be all matched up. Do the markets up. trade better with stagflation or recession? I think it has to be a really deep recession to get a lot of these excesses up. You need to see unemployment go up meaningfully, probably to mm-hmm. 4%. It's just at 3.6%. You talk about housing. We need to see real data that suggests that the housing market has broken the fever that it was in. We've seen manias, as far as risk asset manias, break over the last year. We need to see that, and we need to see unemployment tick up. And you can call it whatever you want. It's going to feel like crap either way. So that's the, you know, and the stock market's not going to like it. Stock market bottoms lower than here. We've been talking about this for months and months. I went to Dan last, by the way, because I knew that he wouldn't answer with one word. Because <laughs> he's just not that way. Uh, coming up, uh, we've got more on hot, uh, the hot inflation print and what one sector uh, might be worth paying a little bit more attention to. We'll dig into rapidly rising rental prices. But first, now it is Twitter's turn to give Elon Musk the bird. How the chairwoman is trading the stock now that it's officially trying to take Tesla to court. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Twitter shares roaring higher today after the company filed suit against Elon Musk to force him to complete his purchase of the company. If you were watching the show last night, you heard the chairwoman telling us that she thought Twitter made a strong argument. The night before, Karen told us she purchased options expecting Twitter to rise. This morning, Karen tweeted that she exited about half her long call position. So, Karen... Mm-hmm. Nice trade so far. What? Where are you right now? So now I'm, I've sold about two thirds of the calls uh, that expire this week and next week. This is what I thought would happen. This is the reason why I was in it. So I'm mostly out of it. It, you know, it's nice to talk about one that worked well, uh, and so it read great. I thought. So now I think about all right. Well, what's next? I think that um, next week we got two possible events. We have earnings which I said will be bad. Mm -hmm. However, it's really important to remember, though, that it doesn't matter how bad these earnings are. The merger agreement is what it is, right? This company said, look, Elon, you even flaked on your own original deal. We can't have a deal where you flake. That's how tight this merger agreement is. So it may trade down on that. If it does, I'll use that as a chance to buy some stock because it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the outcome of either settlement talks or the lawsuit. Right. And that's all dependent on, on... the um, on the merger agreement itself, there was a kind of very odd Wall Street Journal opinion. I read that. Did it you read that? Strong. I mean, t- the Twitter suit looks like a loser. They That's went through a Twitter losing on every every front. I found that to say flimsy would really be giving a lot more credit than I really. It was just amazing to me. It was so odd that it made you think, wow. Elon Musk is a really powerful person. He probably got someone to write that. I think. That's my guess. I don't know, but it just seems so ridiculous. So I, I, I don't know. I, if you read it, it's it, it's so flimsy. It just uh, yeah. But I don't know how else to the say stock, it. Yes. If if you mm-hmm. bought the stock after it fell on earnings, right? Then the long-term game would be that you think that it actually goes through, that the deal I, is consummated. Yes, I think the earnings, no matter how bad, it doesn't change the merger agreement. That is the most relevant. It is the only relevant thing here. Yeah, I mean, being an options guy, I definitely like the trade. And I like the fact that what you hear people say is like, I really like this company. I'm starting to build this option position. I'm glad she used what were, were they, July? 15th expiry, and July? 22, yeah. There you go. Short-term trade is what you use options for. And now she's saying, listen, now that I have the thesis here based on an, an outcome, I'm going to go buy the stock. Because I'll tell you what, if you end up buying long-term options against this, the volatility is going to collapse, and that's not what you want to own. So I, I like the fact that this is a fundamental trader using options in the correct way, and I think too many real tra- retail traders don't do it. Karen, kudos. Yeah, so I was a little skeptical at the time, yeah. I think, when you called in. And I just said, listen, the probability of the, you know these being in the money um, was low. It was like 25 30%, depending upon which one. And so I, I was just saying, unless you know, listen, you always say, read the Ks, read the Qs. Mm-hmm. You read the finer print, okay? Like, you read this, and you were like, you made an assessment about that, and you were willing to risk what you know a certain amount to kind of put that bet on. I think from here on out, the timing of these sorts of events probably gets harder, okay? You yeah. thought that if they're going to file suit. They're going to do it soon. From here on out, then, we have no idea what's the Delaware court going to do this. You know what I mean? Like, but we so do know they'll respond, and we do know there's earnings. Yeah. Right. Those are two things. But this we is know why somebody. you would say that you would buy the stock as opposed to play it through options, because the timeline is so yes, unknown. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But are you worried about owning the stock here? Let's just say there's a resolution where they agree for a billion-dollar breakup fee. They they're just don't agree. want to. They're well, not agreeing to That's their worst-case scenario. There's yeah. no way they agree to their worst-case scenario right out of the gate. Right. What if they agree to $2 billion breakup fee? Not even close. I think Okay. It, it just doesn't. It just. It, they think they have 
a deal at 54.20, and they have a very, very good shot of that. If you think of Louis Vuitton, Tiffany, and you think of, uh, remember, Simon Property Group mm -hmm. said, you know, Taubman, we're not buying you. Could they cut a deal and he'd do something for less in the 40s? That could happen. That wouldn't be surprising at all. But if you own the stock from here and that happens, right. you're, you're happy. Yep. Much more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Inflation running red hot as consumers watch prices tick up and up. But how sticky are rising home prices? The details ahead. Plus, two words, bank earnings. Financials kicking off earnings season tomorrow. So which bank should you bet on? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. Consumer prices rising more than expected in June. And while the number was lower when food and energy were stripped out, one major component was still stubbornly high. Rent prices were up six-tenths of a percent compared to May and 5.6% from last year. Housing a major component of the Fed's PCE metric. So what does the stickiness of these numbers tell us? Let's bring in Andy Walden of Black Knight. He's a VP of Enterprise Research and Strategy. Andy, great to have you with us. How should we think about... Um, the stickiness of rents and, and what the lag is. I mean, if the Fed is doing everything it can to make housing more affordable and sort of, quote unquote, break the sector, how long does that take to translate into what we're seeing uh, when it comes to rent prices? Yeah, I think there are a couple different components there. One, if you look at rents, I think you're seeing some carryover from affordability, right? If you look at housing affordability, it's now the lowest it's been since the 1980s. And so some of those folks that are being priced out of the purchase market are moving into uh, the rent market. So I certainly think that you're going to see a little bit more stickiness there, a little bit more upward movement in rent than you see in the housing market. That being said, it, it's kind of like a front, runaway freight train, right? We've seen home price growth at record highs, 20% year over year home price growth. It's going to take some time. We, we saw annual home price growth fall uh, at the, the most significant degree that we've seen it since 2006. But at that pace, it's going to take some time to get back to normal levels. So how much does, uh, does housing have to come down in order for I mean, how, how should we think about what the lag time is? When should we start seeing the results in rents? Yeah, and I think you're already starting to see them to some degree, right? You're, you're, especially when you look at the, the purchase price of housing, when you look at home price growth, you're already starting to see some of those come into play. I think as we move through the summer months, kind of those peak lease months in the, in the market, and as you start to get into more of the seasonal lull, I think we'll start to see some of these numbers begin to, to come down. It's Karen. Thanks for being on. So let me ask, sometimes you see a market over, not overheat, to have a, a great uh, uh, return, you start to see more product, right? How long would it take, and are, and are companies too afraid of building into what would then become a bubble if everyone were building? 
Yeah, I think you're seeing some of that. And we have been seeing growth in recent years, but I think if you take a longer term view of the housing market, we've underbuilt really since 2006. And so this isn't a situation, I think building is going to help. Building isn't going to get us out of the trough that we're in from a, uh, an inventory perspective. And we are starting to see some growth in terms of inventory out there in the market. Uh, both May and June saw the largest inventory growth that we've seen over the last five years. So we're moving in the right direction, but it's really demand side falling down more than supply side improving. We're still seeing uh, below pre-pandemic levels of, of inventory hitting the market. It's really the slowdown on the purchase side that's allowing that inventory to grow. So certainly some demand to be filled there from the, the purchase perspective, but not something that we're gonna build ourselves out of in the near term. I think the inventory growth we're gonna see is from pullback in, in the demand side. Yeah, Andy, I agree. I think this is going to take longer than people think. But I was surprised, and I'm sure you caught this. It was June 14th, I think, as Jerome Powell was walking off this, this stage. He basically said, oh, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, for any of you millennials thinking about buying a home, you know, sort of think again. I mean, I think Karen made this point earlier. They're doing everything they possibly can to cool this housing market down. And I think it's going to be, to a certain extent, futile. Yeah. Well, I think it'll work. It's going to take longer than expects, and it'll be a very difficult soft landing for the market. We saw it play out somewhat similarly in the early 1980s when the Fed ratcheted up rates to cool off inflation, cool off the housing market, and somewhat of a smooth landing that time. I think it's more challenging this time around because of how far out in front of incomes home prices have been running, right? Home prices are up 60% over the last five years. Income's up roughly 15%. Back in the 80s, income's kept up with home prices. So we're in a much different environment. The average home is worth about six times income now. It's traditionally three and a half to four times. So a lot tougher to kind of to, to navigate that, that water of a, a cool landing or a smooth landing in, in the housing market this time around. I think they will be effective at cooling it down. You're starting to see the, the early stages, but there's a lag there in the housing market, right? I think we're going to see some of the strongest cooling later this year. So you're not going to see the fruits of, of these recent interest rate increases for a, a few months there when you start to track some of that housing market data. Strongest cooling sounds like um, a euphemism, Andy. What do you really mean? What does that, what does the non-soft landing mean for the housing market? Where are mortgage well, rates look- in this non-soft land? I mean, what, what rate will break the housing market to the Fed's you know, satisfaction? Well, and if you look at, so if you triangulate incomes, interest rates, home prices right now to get back to a normal level of affordability, right? A long run average level of affordability, it would take mortgage rates at roughly 3% right now. So there's a lot more of a challenge this time. It's not just interest rates driving on affordability like it was in the 80s. It's 50% price growth and 50% interest rate. So simple interest rate pullback may not fully solve the problem if the Fed fully reversed course and, and tried to uh, initiate a soft landing. So I think there is some risk there. The last three times you've seen prices at this level, there hasn't been national price declines in each one of those instances, but there certainly have been markets that have seen price pullbacks. And I think you're seeing some early signs of that today. And, and we're getting some indicators of which of those markets it could potentially be by the de- deceleration we've seen in those markets over the last uh, month and a half. Okay, Andy, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much. You bet. Andy, Thank you. Andy Walden. So Karen mentioned how the home builders were reacting. Guy, what's your take on all of this? You know, I think the, I heard what Dan said earlier, and I think he's probably going to be right. But I'd actually take a flyer here on home builders only because I think 10-year yields are going to go lower, and I think they're so correlated with 10-year yields. So I think you might see this sort of um, unexplainable rally in home builders in this environment, understanding 
that they're going to come under pressure probably towards the end of the year. That's my take. I mean, the, the extrapolation of all this is that if, if home prices remain high, if rents remain high, then the headline number is still going to be high. I mean, CPI will still remain high because it's two-fifths of core, because it's one-sixth of PCE, Dan. All right. I'm just about ready to explode right here. Okay. So if you guys, if we're talking about, okay, like when the the housing market is going to come in Mm -hmm. and we're looking at the home builder stocks that are down 40 plus percent, despite the fact that they just rallied, there is, it would be a near impossibility to not see the housing market come in the way that people are pricing these stocks at the valuations that, I mean, to me, does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying in a way? It's like, we haven't, we haven't seen the housing market really in a material fashion weaken, okay? But what is going on, it can't just be about interest rates, why home building stocks are trading the way they are. Home builders have been telling us a lot of bad news yet, but we haven't seen home values come in yet. So I guess if you want to extrapolate that, I just think that's going to happen. We're going to have the housing market that is going to come in. That negative wealth effect is going to work its well through the the entire economy as the stock market remains weak and unemployment yet has not ticked up yet. So I just think there's a ticking time bomb here. And I think the way the banks act, especially the big money centers that do a lot of the lending, the way these home builders act, they're telling you this. They're telling you. There's a lag effect. Correct. Thank you. That's coming. Thank you. All right. Do you agree? No, she doesn't. I just my gut reaction is, is always no. to disagree with Dan. But no, I hear what you're saying. I also think we're in the, we're in this market where sellers see, wow, the guy down the street got X six months ago. I'm hanging on for X. That's going to start to change. Prices are going to start to come down. And I think that there is a big disconnect between where there's a lot of room in between for home builders and housing prices to come down. No, no, no. no. The the one thing that I haven't heard discussed is, is supply. And supply is so much different now than it was. I'm with Dan that there will be softness. But I can understand, I do not think we're revisiting the GFC, like by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Coming up, financial foreshadowing. Big banks kick off earnings tomorrow, but could expectations be pointing to some rough results? We'll dig into the trade next. Plus, penny wise and dollar foolish, has the U.S. currency been stretched to extremes? The technicals could be pointing to some trouble ahead. The details and fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're about to kick off big bank earnings with J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley leading the charge tomorrow. And there are some important factors to watch when the results cross. First, there's a headline profit number, of course. Analysts mostly expecting second quarter results to fall sharply versus a year ago. Then loan loss reserves expected to increase. Lenders adding some more cash reserves as economic conditions worsen. They want to be prepared. Another factor to watch, capital markets revenue. Analysts expecting that to be lower, too, as the IPO market has all but dried up. M&A volumes still stay low. And lastly, the uh, bank's mortgage business is expected to drop as higher interest rates weigh on home loan demand. So with all this in play, which names do you like heading into earnings? Guy, what do you say? I think Goldman Sachs, to me, you know, it's back to this sort of 280-ish level. And I think right around book value, I think the quarter is going to be extraordinary, mostly on trading revenues, which they won't be fully rewarded for. But I think they will be rewarded to a certain degree. So I think Goldman can rally. But to me, and I've said this a number of times, I'm sure Karen agrees. I mean, it's amazing that J.P. Morgan's within a whisper of a 52-week low. But I think they'll report a strong quarter. And my sense is the aforementioned Jamie Dimon will back off some of his rhetoric, which will allow the stock maybe to get back into the low 120s or so. 
So for me, I mean, it's not tomorrow, but Bank America is my biggest position. Um, J.P. Morgan probably next, and then Morgan Stanley after that. So, you know, I, I think clearly going into this earnings season, right, we're at or near the very lows. So I like that setup. I think we're going to see the things you said, but net interest income, I think, will be up. That's really important. If loan growth is up, that's better margins than just holding cash and buying securities. That's good for them. We're not going to see as much of a tailwind from buybacks. And we're also going to see that other comprehensive income hit because the, the fixed income they own will be marked down because of the rate move. But that's all noise. What really is important, though, is what is their outlook for the economy? And I think that's what we want to hear as guys saying, you know, we want to see what Jamie has to say. I always want to see what Jamie has to say. You want to Regardless. see Jamie. I, well, there's um, that, too. There's a pesky <laughs> little thing called the inverted yield curve, which I know, Karen, you've explained to us many times. Yes. It doesn't matter necessarily that much to bank earnings. Correct. But at the same time, they get caught up in terms of the trade, that how the stocks trade with the inverted yield curve monument. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it speaks to net interest margins. Now, it's not the full story, but like mm-hmm. typically, I mean, if you're borrowing short and lending long, the inverted not, yield curve yeah, is good. not really your friend. You know, I think I think the sentiment around these names is so negative that I wouldn't be surprised anything even remotely interpreted as being positive that it leads to a rally. I'm just not sure if it's sustainable. I mean, like, between net interest margins and what the the, the loan loss provisions or, or credit markdown provisions are, I think that will t- that that's all I need to know to understand what people who really have a pulse on the economy and on consumers think about the state of the consumer going forward. Forget the lagging indicators. If you are seeing a ratchet up in loan loss provisions, I think it is telling you very clearly. But we will. Prepared. Right? right. I mean, we, will. we will. We will. And I, I think mean, that's Telegram maybe more expected, than beyond right. what's expected. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Sticking with financials, one trader's betting that things might be about to come down for the banks. They're risking $45 million that the bottom is in for the space. Tony Zhang joins us with the action. Tony. Yeah, that's exactly right, Melissa, especially with bank earnings coming up tomorrow. We've seen XLF, the financials ETF, trade fairly actively, two times the average daily volume. And one particular strategy that we've seen a lot over the past few weeks have been traders that are harvesting this implied volatility or elevated implied volatility to get long. And an example of this particular trade is a trader who sold 15,500 contracts of the August $29 puts, collecting about 40 cents, so a little bit more than 1% of the ETS value. That is an obligation of $45 million to purchase this ETF by that August expiration if it's below $29. So a pretty sizable bet that we are potentially near a bottom here, at least in financials, and potentially in the market overall. All right. Thanks for that, Tony. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, the million-dollar question. Has the greenback come too far too fast? Carter Worth of Worth Charting is hitting the FX technicals to find out that's next. Plus, check out shares of Fastenal. Sinking in today's session, we'll tell you why investors were fast to exit. The details in Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The dollar index surging to new 20-year highs today on the back of June's red-hot CPI read. Those moves causing the euro to briefly dip back below parity with the greenback. But the chartmaster thinks the dollar may have climbed too far too fast. Carter Worth is here at the Nasdaq to make the case. Carter. 
Well, uh, that's right. On a tactical short-term basis, this is way overdone. I think everyone's on uh, one side, and we saw the price action today in the market. After what was an initial reaction to CPI, of course, the dollar uh, reversed. We know that rates reversed, gold reversed, and in many ways, the S&P reversed. Let's look at some comparative charts. These are all the same chart, but different time frames. So the first one is two years, and it's simply comparing the dollar to the euro. Two colors, two lines, and basically this spread is one of the wider spreads on record in terms of a short-term setup. So on a two-year basis, I think the arrows are drawn like that. Let's look at the five-year comparative, and we've got a very similar thing. So same circumstance, playing for a bounce in the euro and a give back in the dollar. Now let's go a little further. This is 10 years. Spread not quite as extreme, but still, my thinking is we get some um, convergence. But it's always about who you are in the market, what your time frames are. Let's look at this one. How about 20? So now what? They're dead even. They're dead even. Is it, is it good? Is it bad? Is it overdone? Long-term structure, the dollar can go much higher. Tactically, it's way overdone. Let's do one more, two more. 30 years, and let's do all data. Going back to 75. Is it stretched? It's certainly not as stretched as that. That's the Plaza Accord, right, when they intervened. But the point is, on a tactical basis, I think you want to do what no one wants to do, which is start to trim your uh, gains in the dollar and nibble on the euro. Does this necessarily mean, Carter, that commodities will go higher? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I don't think those things have a relationship on a short-term basis. I mean, we know that, obviously, this uh, dollar strength um, has hurt oil, but it wasn't hurting oil until it did, um, et cetera, and so forth. So here and now, this is really about the dollar being stretched in and of itself. All right, Carter, good to see you. Thank you. Carter Braxtonworth of Worth Charting. Guy, I know you're always with Carter, but what do you think of that, <laughs> that chart? I, I, so, I so dig Carter. I, I love what he's saying, because what he's saying is over, the, you know, over a 20, 30-year period, the dollar is not stretched at all. I happen to agree with that. But in this period where you can trade it, it is stretched, and I happen to agree. I think the dollar can get sold off here. I think rates can go lower from here, and I think you might see a short-term bounce in the broader market. That bounce needs to be sold, and that dollar weakness needs to be bought, but it's probably not going to be over the next couple weeks where it comes to full fruition, which is, by the way, a great word that I use from time to time. <laughs> I think there's an argument to be had that what we're seeing in the 10-year is... Uh, sovereign entities buying the dollar because of fears of, of EU weakness. So I, I get it. I'm hesitant to step in front of a dollar that is a runaway train. And I might maybe like look at GLD as a way that's just like where you're not establishing yourself in a short position against a dollar, which is up and to the right. Now, Carter's charts are uh, above reproach. I just think it, like it's tough to step in front of a supply-demand situation like that, given where we are in an macroeconomic environment. I think it's just, it's, it's tough to time that. Coming up, we are talking fast on fast. Shares of Fastenal dropping in today's session. We'll tell you what the industrial supplies company had to say about demand. Don't go anywhere. We're back in two. We've got a buzzkill in the manufacturing sector. Fastenal went into freefall after the CEO of the industrial supply company said it saw signs of slowing demand in May and June. 
The stock closed down more than 6%, its biggest loss since March 2020. Um, Dan, you flagged this. Yeah, I mean, here's one where, again, I think that if you look at every cycle, I only know about this company because I don't follow it. I don't trade it or whatever. I remember in the recession 20 years ago, a much smarter, you know, a more experienced person than me said, watch these guys. Watch the guys who make pallets. Watch the, you know, this and that or whatever. And when you see this sort of headline and you see a stock making new 52-week lows on big volume based on this sort of guidance, I think you really want to pay attention and start thinking about who are their customers, who are similar sorts of companies that feed into these sorts of end markets. And I think that you would probably make a mistake if you just discounted this because you didn't think it was that important of a company. How do you think of industrials in relationship to Fastenal, what they said? I think I agree with what Dan's saying. Yeah. I do think it's a, you know, a look into it and it has such a, they're in so many parts of the businesses, you know, mm-hmm. from energy to transportation to all kinds of things, industrial. So, you know, I do have a URI position. It's probably not great for them, but um, no, I, I find myself agreeing with Dan. It's still not cheap. I mean, it's down. It was down Fastenal. a little. Yeah, Fastenal's still not cheap. Sure, we'll both be right. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's not cheap, and I really think it speaks to you know the rotate the re-rotation that we're seeing. First, it was growth into more economically sensitive. Now it's and we 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 talked a lot about what does value actually mean. Value doesn't necessarily mean economically sensitive, and so I think you're going to continue to see that divergence there. Economically sensitive does not necessarily mean value, and and in this particular case, clearly there was no value to be had. Yeah, guy. Dan also brought up ServiceNow the other day. So, you know, I I would submit, and I think Dan would say this as well. I mean, Fastenal isn't the end-all, be-all, but it's part of a pastiche for what's going on, and I think Mm. he's right to bring it up. And it is concerning, and if you read through um, what they said, inflation's a concern, supply chain's a concern, Um, their, their inability to move product is a concern. So... They're not the only ones that are going to say that the same way ServiceNow is impacting names like Microsoft and others. So well done by Dan once again. Yeah. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Guy Dami, are you laughing? Mel, before I say Qualcomm, were you surprised that the Rangers gave Trocheck seven years? Crazy, totally. right? Totally. 100. Yeah. No, it's amazing. You know, you and I. Qualcomm! <laughs> Bono in. Uh, GLD, I, I like Carter's trade. I just don't have the stones to be short the short the, um, the dollar right here. GLD. Stones meaning guts. Yeah. Courage. Uh, Karen. Yeah, I'm going to stick with my one uh, good sell Twitter, short-term Twitter calls. And later we'll be doing a one-hour show of trades that didn't work. Full hour. <laughs> Damn. Oh, we could have really used no. him tonight because we had like a half a minute left. <laughs> You have a lot to say. I have a lot to say. I think it was a punchy episode here. You know, Bono got all in there. Listen, I think I think Carter's call on the dollar makes a lot of sense. It probably comes back towards that uptrend. That would put it around 104. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.